Hey Brian, welcome to the third episode of The Goods, a film podcast starring you and me. How you doing this week? Hey Dan, it's good to be back. I'm enjoying being in the swing of watching the movie. Yeah, definitely. It's been fun so far. 100% agree. So uh, this week I asked you to watch Everybody Wants Some, the 2016 comedy written and directed by Richard Linklater. This was before his Oscar for Boyhood. And starring Blake Jenner as Jake Bradford. His love interest is played by Zoe Deutsch. Her name's Beverly. And then those are really the two main leads. There's a lot of, it's a big ensemble cast. Um, there are a lot of other names you could throw in there. A couple of standouts for me were Glenn Powell as Finn, uh, Wyatt Russell as Willoughby, and Tyler Hecklin as Mac. I think Hecklin around this time played Superman. It's not really a star-studded cast. It was mostly unknowns. So it's it's an interesting flavor. No, but it, it does put focus on the ensemble. Definitely. It's a big cast of characters, and everybody has something to do in what could be called the story. Right. The, some background on this movie. Uh, Linklater's second film and breakout from, I think, 1993 is Dazed and Confused, which chronicles the last day of a school year at a high school in 1976. And when that movie came out, it tanked at the box office. But over the next few years, it became this sensation, uh, something that would get played at dorms, during parties, something that people were revisiting and saying, hey, man, this movie's actually pretty great. As that was happening in the late 90s, uh, Linklater decided he wanted to make a spiritual sequel. So he started making notes, writing a script, brainstorming it. And the idea is instead of the last day of high school, it would be the first day of college. And it got put on hold for quite a long time. And finally, around the mid-2010s, almost 20 years later, it, it actually picked up. He got a cast. It got filmed. And it released in 2016. Uh, the reviews were pretty solid. I think it's in the 80s and Rotten Tomatoes, uh, in the 80s and Metacritic as well, which is uh, a very strong score. And the f format of the movie is very much indebted to what Linklater has done in some of his previous films. Definitely Dazed and Confused. Also S Slacker, where it just follows this ensemble in a sort of plotless, large hangout situation where we just kind of see this ensemble and get to know these characters for a day and everything is kind of propelled by this vibrant varied soundtrack specifically this film covers a weekend a thursday through a monday morning right before blake jenner's character jake starts his first day of college so i was going to ask how much experience do you have with richard linklater and his specific mindset towards filmmaking so you're definitely right that he seems to put a lot of emphasis into capturing a vibe and sort of realistic conversations. Things happen in a realistic way, sort of, uh, in that there aren't really a lot of moments of melodrama or conventional theatrical type drama. Right. It's, it's very, it, it attempts to feel organic and with a, almost a realism, maybe an enhanced realism. But normally when you, you hear that type of filmmaking, it's in the realm of drama, gritty drama, interpersonal stuff. This is organic, realistic comedy, which is, it's just a kind of a, a unique lane that he's found. Definitely become his, it's become his uh, calling card. You know, he's had a lot of films in this way. The before movies, before sunset, sunrise, before sunset and before midnight have a slightly different version of this because it's centered around two characters but it is again similar it attempts like kind of a realism and a, and a vibe i've seen uh five of his movies now the ones where he is the writer and the director have worked for me the one that i saw which was where'd you go bernadette uh where he was just the director and not the writer and now as i'm saying this i realize that i've seen another i've seen school of rock which he did not write but he did direct 
Really? Yeah. I was actually going to recommend School of Rock as a possible future contender for the podcast. But to conclude my previous thought, I think he's at his best when he's doing his own thing rather than as a uh, director of other material. Although I do quite like School of Rock. In this movie, which has a heavy focus on baseball, we haven't said yet, I don't think, but it's Jake and his ensemble of characters that he's hanging out with most of the movie are college baseball players. And what this movie struck me as with its charismatic ensemble where everybody's kind of quirky and the semi-plotless narrative that's really more a, a string of moment than a conventional dramatic arc. It reminded me a lot of The Sandlot. Basically, it's an older, more potty-mouthed Sandlot cast. Okay, I can dig that. In that, it's like 1960, so it's also capturing a bygone era. I like that. I have not seen Boyhood, his Oscar winner. Have you seen Boyhood? I have seen Boyhood, and I was thinking of saving these feelings for a little later. I did not like Boyhood at all. The gimmick of Boyhood for anyone unfamiliar, is that it took 12 years to make. And I guess Linklater would reconvene the cast for like a week each summer over the course of 12 years. Well, it follows a kid as he grows up from six years old to 18 years old. He took, in my opinion, 12 years of these people's lives and made a movie where nothing (laughs) happened. It has something in common with these other two films, Dazed and Confused, and Everybody Wants Some, in that you could call it plotless. I don't know. It really is more about focusing on moments of real life and realistic conversations that he injects with a sense of self-importance and maybe a bit too much self-importance. Okay. It, it, It could be seen as a little bit indulgent. I ended up feeling cheated because my conventional narrative expectations were not met. Boyhood is a movie that got amazing reviews, but every person I've talked to who's seen it has not liked it. So I don't really know exactly what to expect uh, about what my reaction will be. I tend to really like Linklater movies that he's written and directed, but I'm a little wary. So I guess we'll see. So I think we can dive into talking about the movie and before we get started it's a friday night i'm gonna crack open a coldie in the spirit of the film i cracked open a couple during it's a great movie for drinking alongside same thing with dazed and confused it's a movie that i just have to be drinking when i watch it so the movie opens with jake driving an oldsmobile 442 sports car down the road heading to campus with my Sharona playing in the background. For me, it's this instantly iconic opening shot, and it evokes the end of Dazed and Confused, um, where the, the film ends with a shot of, every, of a car driving away from the camera. And this one starts with it, a car driving towards the camera. So it's like a nice little bit of symmetry. One thing about the song My Sharona, it's, it's a perfect fit to set the tone of the movie. But I've, I have a fascination with this song on, a, on uh, multiple levels. I just I find it really catchy, and it gets stuck in my head all the time. And it's been stuck in my head since I rewatched this movie for now a little over a week. One interesting thing about this song is it's been a part of various films, but there's a particularly interesting film licensing that occurred in the early 90s. So right around the same time, the band or the, the label got approached to include My Sharona in two different films. One of them was Pulp Fiction, and one of them was Reality Bites, the Ben Stiller dramedy. Uh, Reality Bites, they wanted to have the cast, which includes Ethan Hawke and Winona Ryder, dancing around to it in a gas station. And in Pulp Fiction, Tarantino wanted to use it as the soundtrack to Marcellus Wallace getting raped. And I think you can guess which one they ended up going with. That's funny. I'll say that My Sharona is one of those songs where I heard the Weird Al Yankovic version first. And that's what I hear in my... My Bologna. Correct. That's good. That's a good pull. So as he drives to campus, he starts ogling all these women that are on campus And I have to say about this movie and about the many 80s comedies I've seen that 
the 80s was a great ass decade like it, it was all about the asses then and not like the 90s when I grew up, whenever women were fetishized, it was always like women were <laughs> popping out of their bikini top, you know. But the 80s, no, it's 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 all about the lower half. And I think that kind of came back in the, the late 2000s, the 2010s. I do like you, your dedicated bullet point in our planning document <laughs> here that just says asses. So he arrives at his college house. We get the timestamp. It's Thursday, August 28th, 1980, 4.06 p.m., and then we learn that class starts in three days, 15 hours. And that will be the duration of this film, those three days and 15 hours. He walks into the house and he is immediately greeted by an odd scene of the ceiling nearly caving in. And we learn that it's because they're filling up a waterbed up there. Over the next few scenes, we get to meet most of his teammates because he is, in fact, a baseball player, as you mentioned, a freshman pitcher. We meet these guys in a blur and then get to know them more and more over the film. And for me, this kind of replicated the experience of starting something new, a new job. You know, when we started school and college, how you meet all these people and it's just kind of a blur and you don't really know much about them. You maybe get a little bit of first impression, but then over the next several days, you, you get to know them more and more and they start to stand out. The first time I saw this, I was like, who are all these people? I'm never going to keep track of them. But the movie actually does a pretty good job of giving them distinct personalities over time. I would agree. You grow to get to know them. So there's Finn, the charismatic and articulate one. He is probably my favorite character in the movie. There's the aggressive all-American Mac. He's a senior, I think. There's the, the stoner, who's a transfer student. Another pitcher named Willoughby. There's his fellow freshmen, Ty and Brumley. Brumley's the one who I sent you a picture before we watched it. And I said, he's got the baby face, looks just like your, your little brother. He does bear a, a pretty strong resemblance to my younger brother, yeah. We also meet his hillbilly-accented, moody roommate, Billy, who the rest of the team calls Buter, to make fun of his accent. There's the hyper-competitive Raw Dog, another transfer student, Jay Niles. There's the good-time friend of everyone who also happens to be the token black character, Dale. There's the slightly cuckoo southpaw left-handed pitcher named Nesbitt. And then there's plenty of others, but I would say those are the ones that get the most screen time. And, you know, just listening through all of them, it, it really is a pretty full ensemble of all of these uh, young men in various 80s attire and facial hair. Yeah, I think it's important to point out that this film takes place in 1980. So it's not so much uh, an 80s film as like a very late 70s. They definitely have the big mustaches. There's a disco club that they go to. You get some of the 80s stuff, and then you definitely get some of that late 70s stuff too. So after he's met many of his teammates, they hop in the car, and they drive to happy hour, and they rap along to, to Rapper's Delight. I'm going to go on a brief tangent here. One thing I want to do with you sometime, Brian, is I don't know if it'd be a special episode or a article or something but i want to do a top five tropes list where we each make a list of our top five favorite tropes in movies for okay. me one of them is when characters in a non-musical sing along to a song especially like a well-known song often on the radio something about that for me just really uh, gets me quite mm -hmm. excited in fact i mentioned the reality bite scene with my sharona that's a great one and i after I saw this movie the first time, I went on YouTube and I watched the scene of them rapping to Rapper's Delight like 10 times. And I smiled every single time. It's just a really delightful little scene of them. That's that's funny. It did kind of make me think of the scene near the beginning of Wayne's World when they're driving around singing. Bohemian yeah, Rhapsody. that's another good one for sure. So as they're as they're headed to happy hour, they, they cruise past the dorms. And they try to hit on some of the girls there and recruit them to, to party with them later. There's this one girl who rebuffs Finn and makes a remark about liking the quiet guy in the back, who's Jake. And as they're driving away, he, he writes down the dorm number of the door that she walks into. And, and Finn makes the joke that just went from cute to restraining order as he, he writes down the, uh, the dorm number of this girl. Well, I'll say that this is one moment that receives significant import and then pays off later because he does pursue this girl throughout the movie. Unlike 
the water yeah. at the beginning that they fill up and it cracks the floor and doesn't end up destroying the I house. I know, it's a anything. little scattershot with uh, those Chekhov's guns. And I think that's part of like the realism vibe is sometimes things happen and sometimes things don't. And I like to imagine that that waterbed maybe played a role in that household over the rest of the year. But no, this weekend there was no payoff on, on seeing that waterbed. It's just kind of like a strange scene that he gets thrown into. So they arrive at the Fox, as they call it, which is kind of a divey, but very warm and comfortable bar. They get pitchers of beer. Then they hop back over to the house where they have the meeting with Coach. And you kind of get introduced to the freshmen in particular. Some of the other players, like Mac, is this commanding team captain. And the coach sets up two very clear rules. No booze at the house and no women upstairs. And I don't think it's a spoiler alert that these rules will be broken before the end of the film. And uh, one thing that I'll get to is I found it funny just how quick those rules get broken. After the coaches meeting, they all go out. They go to uh, the disco dance club that you mentioned. It's called The Soul Machine. And it's kind of our first real party scene that we get, the first of many. I have to say, I, I just think that the parties in general, but particularly the disco dance club, just has really lovely lighting and direction. It has the dancing. It's so energetic and so fun. There's a sense of kinetic energy to it, but it doesn't feel over choreographed the way that some dance scenes do. Like it's plausible, maybe like slightly heightened fantasy, but plausible that they could actually be college kids dancing in a bar this way. And it just makes it very fun and warm and engaging to watch. I don't know if you had that sensation at all. I would agree. I think maybe this movie's biggest strong point is creating a variety of period bar scenes. Really, they are capturing different subcultures, different cliques and scenes of the early 80s uh, because we get maybe like five yeah, of or these different shows. bars. Yeah. And each one has got a, a vibe and they're all well realized in the sense of set design and music choice and costuming. Agreed, yeah. So at this club, he meets Val, who's this bubbly and friendly, very clearly a groupie of the baseball team. All the, all the guys on the team know her. She dances with him. They all head back to the house. And as soon as they get there, they're immediately breaking the rules. Everybody has a beer in hand. There's music playing. They set aside a room downstairs for private time. And then all at the same time, just decide to, to go upstairs and, and break that rule. Jake tries to bring Val upstairs to his room, but his roommate, Billy, a.k.a. Buter, is there. And they kind of have this little clash, but Jake still ends up hooking up with Val in his car. Uh, this is the, the scene that earned the film its R rating as we get a montage of all of these uh, baseball players hooking up with the girls they met at the disco bar. Yes, we do get one pair of breasts in this movie. Not quite as many as you would sometimes see in a genuine 80s movie, but they are there. So the, the next morning, it's now Friday. They wake up, we see them, they're already sipping beers in the morning, and Buter heads home, worrying his girlfriend is pregnant. He'll eventually pop back on, I guess, Sunday for the baseball practice. Just kind of these little things that happen and flow in and out of these of Jake's life and over the course of these three days. This whole day, they're kind of chilling out. They go to re registration, they hang out in the backyard and, and go to the arcade, and we start to see some of this like hyper competitive bullshit that is going to be a recurring theme throughout the movie. Mac, there's this great slow motion shot of uh, Mac making a bet and then cutting a baseball in half with, with an axe. Yeah, this scene with the axe, I wanted to get the Mythbusters on this because he's got an axe that he's swinging around like a baseball bat. And then, like, on the spur of the moment, Mac asks one of the teammates to, to toss balls at him, saying that he can chop them in half, swinging the axe, and then proceeds to do it twice in a row. This is one moment of exaggerated I drama, I would say. And I just really wanted to know if this was actually a, a reasonable feat, if this could even be it's done It's definitely all. one of the most heightened moments of reality that we get in this, this film. 
it does have sort of a purpose. Uh, it shows that Mac is the real deal. But I agree. I, I would be interested to know how sharp does an axe have to be for this to be possible. So then it's, it's night again. They're getting ready for, for their second night out. We get a long scene of them getting dressed up, putting on cologne, and it's this um, these amazing late 70s, early 80s outfits, tight shirts, some ruffled sleeves. The pants are way too tight. There's a little bit of bell bottoms going on. It's, it's just a, a fantastic bit of costuming work going on. A quick interjection about tight shirts. I will say that our protagonist, Jake, has the perkiest nipples I've ever seen. <laughs> They're just springing out of his shirt. I didn't notice that, but I, I think I'm going to have to look for that next time I watch. I'll be on nipple watch. So they head back to the Soul Machine, which is the, the disco dance club from the previous night. Val, who, of course, is kind of the, the happy-go-lucky groupie, is dancing with a football player. And Jake is all annoyed because he had just hooked up with her the previous night. He's, he's kind of pissed off about that. And then, just as things are getting going at the Soul Machine, Raw Dog, I forget the character's name, he just keeps calling himself Raw Dog, so that's what I always call him. He gets into this argument with the bartender about a screwdriver, which I have to say is like the least complicated and controversial possible drink you can order. And they have this ridiculous argument about it, and it escalates, and a brawl breaks out. And the entire baseball team gets kicked out. So they're out of the disco club for that night, which is perhaps a contrivance, but it's something to get them to go to, as you said, one of these different bars that has a totally different scene with its totally different choreography and costuming and real sense of place and sense of feel. And in this case, it's the country Western bar. There's a bull riding. There's a group dance to Cotton Eye Joe. There's cowboy hats and pulling up your, your pants with your thumbs. And it's, it's shot nearly as lovely as the disco bar. And it's a place that I wanted to hop into with them for sure. Yeah, I would check out any of these places. One quick thing I wanted to say about the character who's referred to as Raw Dog. I think his name is Jay. He stuck out to me. This guy is a real weirdo. I know I made an analogy in our last episode to... One of the characters being played by an actor who is the Zodiac killer in another movie. To make another serial killer analogy, this guy, Jay, really made me think of Ed Kemper in the Netflix series Mindhunter. In that he's got this like very clip mustache and these big, thick Coke bottle glasses. He's just super intense and a weird kind of creepy, strange vibe. Yeah, for me, the character of Raw Dog is one of the weakest points of the film. I, I think Linklater is at his best when he's being more subtle. And this Raw Dog character is about as broad as anything in this film. He's just this big, over-the-top personality. And I found myself not enjoying his scenes, particularly as I was watching through again this time. So... I agree that he definitely stands out. And for me, not the film's strongest tone or strongest suit. So then we cut back to the next morning. Now it's Saturday. And they're all just hanging out at the house again. Uh, they're, they're playing all these games together. They're doing like basketball with uh, a hoop you hang over the door. And a big one is Jake is going against Mac in ping pong. And Mac just gets crazy intense competitive and gets really angry when he loses. Throws a ping pong paddle breaks it uh, it's another kind of insight into the competitive mindset of the the team and of mac in particular and we get this amazing and instantly iconic stoner scene shortly afterwards with w willoughby who is a transfer pitcher he's doing this intense bong hit he's talking about the twilight zone he's got every single one on tape he has this just phenomenal rant about the space in between the notes and how you got to tune into life and how humans used to be telepathic and they're all stoned out of their mind. And it's, it's just a, a perfect little scene. And this is another moment of really good production design. I wanted to look around Willoughby's room <laughs> really hard. I just wanted to look at his Betamax tape player and like his hi-fi sound system 
he has all this late 70s, early 80s tech all around his room with the wood grain. They clearly put a lot of thought into designing this space. That Willoughby is one of the high. stronger characters or mo- more entertaining characters in the film. Part of the, the, the thing about Linklater is that I guess he's really good at writing stoner characters because Slater in Dazed and Confused is maybe the iconic character of that movie. Well, probably number two behind uh, Matthew McConaughey's character. Just something about the stoners. Linklater just, just nails it. It's, it's so rewatchable, so fun, so quotable. So they start wandering around campus and uh, it's, it's Jake and a few of his teammates and he bumps into a high school friend. This high school friend is in kind of Ramon's punk getup. He's got kind of the shaggy, ugly long hair and the cut up t-shirt. I actually really like this moment for Jake. It gives him kind of some personality and some, some warmth. He, he's kind of playing the cool guy, trying to be tough when he's with his teammates, but he sees his high school buddy, immediately warms up, invites his friends to go, let's, oh, let's go hang out with, with him for a bit they decide to go to a punk show and at this punk show another just we've said it about basically every musical scene so far but another really well shot it actually i've been to punk shows before this actually felt like the punk shows that i've been to the energy the noise you could tell it was loud the kind of grunginess of it and uh, they play the Gilligan's Island theme and uh, Jake decides to, to go and, and mosh. And it's it's just an, another really nice little musical scene. Yeah, this was a really interesting moment of cinematography. When they all jump into the mosh pit, the camera like takes off and flies way up high to the ceiling of the club. Clearly, it was a moment they wanted to try something significant. Because they, they had to put thought into setting up that shot and how the camera was going to move. And it was, once again, striking. This scene is also where we get the, what is it called? Is it lamp shading of the theme of the film where... Draw yeah. attention to something? He has a, Jake has a conversation with Finn about how they, they're going, as you said, going to all these different scenes and kind of trying on different personalities and identities at each one of these things. Finn is super likable. He's kind of serving the role. He's like a wise mentor character. He, to put this in a late 70s, early 80s context, he struck me as kind of the Obi-Wan Kenobi to Jake. Saying but also he's a goofball things. in his own right. And, and is just is like talking to women and, and in this like really articulate cheesy way. And it's good. He's a good character. So then after they go to this punk show, they begin prepping for a kind of the centerpiece party of the whole movie. It's this epic house party at the baseball house. And before the party gets started, Jake goes back to that dorm room where he met the girl and wrote down her room number. And he leaves a little note with a flower on the door and we don't get to see her open it or, or see exactly what he wrote, but he leaves it there. And then he heads back to his house in time for the big party. And they pulled out all the stops shooting this party. There's they're hitting golf balls off houses. They're doing vodka, watermelons. There's women in their underwear playing twister. There's mattress surfing down the stairs, mud wrestling, beer bongs, drinking games, beer can bowling, just a little bit of everything. And it kind of is the cliche college party, but it's done with such verve and energy that it is one of the most memorable centerpiece scenes of the film is this, this really epic party. I agree. It's maybe the most college party shown in that it seems to owe a lot to Animal House. This is just a crazy over-the-top That's exactly it. It's a, It's the film's Animal House party for sure. So they wake up the next morning and they're all kind of hung. Well, I say next morning, but I think we see it. It's past noon. They are, they are clearly a little bit hung over. Jake wakes up and he hears, uh, it's a phone call for him. And it's the girl that he left a note for. Her name is Beverly. They have a little bit of cute banter and then they decide to meet up in person. They have themselves a nice little date and she invites him to a party that night. And then they go to the baseball practice. And we see these competitive 
personalities had been playing ping pong, been drinking together, uh, doing all sorts of little dumb games together. They, we see him bring it out on the field. I don't know how many sports movies you've seen, Brian, if that's ever been a genre of interest for you. But one thing about sports movies is it's notoriously hard to film sports that actually feel like the sport being played. This batting practice, I mean, it's not even a real baseball. It's just them hitting around, running bases, pitching against each other. It actually feels like you're watching them play baseball, which is no small feat. It, it might be something that is like not a, a major theme of the film. In fact, it's probably 10 minutes of them playing baseball in a two-hour movie for a baseball team. But I was kind of blown away that they actually managed to capture the feel of playing baseball in this batting practice scene. That's interesting. I will say that I watched this movie with my dad and for a lot of it, he was grousing. Are they going to play some baseball in this baseball movie? And then finally they did. And Dan is right that it did seem genuine. We get a little scene of raw dog trying to outmatch Mac and I will say, as much as I didn't like the raw dog character, I absolutely loved the little scene after Mac hits a home run off of raw dog. He, he, raw dog goes up and does like this little we cool thing with Mac. It was like a, he had kind of calmed down a little bit and was trying to make amends. And it just, it, it added a little bit of shading to raw dog. It was a moment of humility. Yeah. Then we get a nice bit of freshman hazing. And it's uh, freshman batting practice. They duct tape the freshmen up onto a wall and bat baseballs at them. And as the freshmen try to wriggle around and avoid getting uh, hit by these flying baseballs, which seems kind of dangerous. Like I kept being worried that someone was going to get nailed in the eye or something, but I guess they have enough mobility that they can dodge the worst of it. Yeah, it seems like you could get really hurt doing this. So as soon as this uh, baseball scene is done, we cut to them unwinding after practice, hanging out in the river. We see them jumping off of this rope swing, diving off of the trees into the, I don't know if it was a lake or a river or what it was, a little pond or something, but it's just a nice little scene of them kind of hanging out, unwinding together. Yeah, this takes place in Texas. In August, you're probably still wanting to be jumping into that water, especially after some time out on the baseball field. After their little uh, swimming session, they have a team dinner. And one thing that had happened during the practice was coach called Willoughby off the field. They had a little conversation and Willoughby didn't come back. But they learned that this Willoughby transfer student is actually not his real name. He's a 30-year-old, which to them is just 30 years old, which, of course, as a 32-year-old made me feel particularly old. A uh, guy who just floats around pretending to be different people, hopping on college teams and just having a good time. And it's, it's kind of a shame for the rest of them because you get a sense from these first couple days that Willoughby would have been a fun guy to have around. Yeah, they all like and they all talk about what he's done and they agree that it's not the worst thing in the world. Like they, they like yeah. having him there. And you get the sense that it's immediately one of these stories of legend that will be talked about for years to come too. And I also feel like it's almost a callback to Matthew McConaughey's character in the sense of a, a guy who hangs around a school. Past I didn't think about that, but you're 100% right. It's yet another parallel to Dazed and Confused. So then after this dinner, they're, they're back at the house, blowing off some steam, hanging out. It's Sunday, the night before classes. They're They're playing poker together, or at least some poker-esque card game where they seem to be making up the rules as they go calvin ball style one of the freshmen gets told that he has the the manitoga moose what that means is it's it's this like elaborate thing they finn of course has this story about it you have to go up to canada find a moose and perform a sexual act on him one thing that i want to share about this scene that you would not know from film necessarily from just watching the movie is that these guys who are on the baseball team, the way that they prepped for the movie is Richard Linklater rented out this like big estate 
and paid them all for, it was something like two months, or at least it was a f- several weeks to just kind of hang out and get to know each other and play baseball a little bit together and figure out how to refine their personalities and like match their, their on-screen personalities with their in-person personalities. And it was somewhat an attempt to mitigate what was a very troubled shooting of Dazed and Confused that was very clickish and dramatic with breakups and feuds and all sorts of stuff that they wanted everybody to be on the same page and to be kind of in good spirits together. So anyways, one of the outcomes of this as the the preparation for the filming of this was they had these card games where they would just make up more and more ridiculous things that you had to do if certain things happened. Basically what's happening in this scene happened in real life when they were doing this, this whole extended hangout session and the cast loved this bit so much they wanted more of it in the movie. They like were begging Linklater to, to film more of it and put more of it in the movie. And they were pitching to Linklater to have the closing credits scene be having this freshman tromping through the snow in Canada, looking around for a moose. They thought it was the funniest thing ever. So we got a little, a little bit of it, but we didn't get the, uh, the full payoff that the cast wanted. <laughs> Wow, they could have had that as a Marvel Cinematic Universe style yeah. post credit. I think it's probably wise they didn't do it. It would have been a little bit uh, separated from the reality of the rest of the film. But I like how much that that the cast really dug this, and apparently it was something that was not in the original script, but they they threw in there because the cast liked it so much. So then they right. uh, give Jake some shit about being invited to this theater party, and Jake eventually invites them all to join him. And they go to this theater party and it's a good final climax party because it is so epic and insane in the way that you would imagine a theater group party in college would be. There's cats in fridges and one of the freshmen says, cats shouldn't be in fridges, which made me laugh pretty hard. Yeah, so this scene in the sense of a community that's being depicted is like the early D&D kids. Yeah, they're like really into Alice in Wonderland and dressing up in all these different like exaggerated stereotypes and stuff. And they're definitely into the the role playing. So Beverly's there and she recruits Jake to participate in this little stage show improv game skit that she's running. And he appears as the rabbit who's late. Then they kind of hang out for the rest of the night and we get this little soul to soul at 6.09 a.m. on a Monday. We get a little time stamp. They're floating in that little river or lake or whatever after the party and they're just kind of talking about this future they're going to have at this college and how they've kind of made this connection. And it's, it's a nice little bow on the weekend for Jake who has to have had the most amazing first weekend ever at college before class even starts. They wrap up the evening. They head back to her dorm. They go straight to class. And just when they're about to part, they have a little passionate kiss goodbye, a a movie moment, if you will. And right then, of course, Glenn and Dale both had seen it and give him like a teasing round of applause. And and he kind of sticks up for himself saying he really likes her. He thinks he has this connection with her. And then the movie ends as Jake walks into class, sits next to Ty, and of course falls asleep as class starts. And I really liked how one of the last lines is Ty, one of the other freshmen, saying, who's this fucker? As the professor walks in, as if he doesn't know who's going to be running the class. It made me laugh pretty hard. Yeah, that the teacher is an afterthought and plays no role in the narrative. So this moment at the end between Jake and Beverly, where they're floating in the water. It reminded me of the way that boyhood ends, where it's a guy and a girl wandering around the wilderness, having a conversation that serves as the climax of the film. You know, it's been kind of a meandering movie, but then it has this poignant, pensive conversation. Mm Mm-hmm. So now we're going to talk about some of the things we liked about Everybody Wants Some. 
So we've already talked a lot about scenes that we thought were shot really well and just were really engaging. And it's really a testament to Link later. There are things that you would think would be easy that would be kind of, oh, they're just hanging out at a party. You know, it, it seems like it's nothing's really happening. So it should be the easiest thing to film. But it turns out to be really hard. And I've seen a lot of bad comedies from the 80s and 90s where they have parties, house parties, that just do not feel like any party in the world would ever actually feel like. But this movie makes the bars, the parties, every single scene we see, in this case, I mean scene just being like the punk scene, the country scene. It actually feels like a real representation of that kind of hangout. And it's because of Linklater's staging of it. I mean, uh, one of the things I, I learned about when I was reading about the filming is that this was a, a, a quote I read from one of the cast members, I forget who, but that Linklater has a Wikipedia brain for details. You say, oh, I want a uh, country bar in 1980. What, what were people doing then? And he kind of just has it in a memory bank. Oh, they would be dressed this way. They'd be listening to this. This is what the the bartender would say. This is what the DJ would, would sound like. It, it really pays off. I mean, the way that everything about the way the people, the characters talk, the way they just stand with each other, they move and they interact. It just really feels like an, an authentic thing. And I think this is like the peak of Linklater's power is, is this type of stuff. There was one example given of how Linklater could just nail it is that apparently this cast, one of the things, the rituals they had is they had bro hugs whenever they were meeting up or, or partying, they would do bro hugs. But Linklater said, no, bro hugs wasn't a thing in 1980 for jocks. There was this sensitivity around hypermasculinity. So they would do high fives and fist bumps. And so if you watch the movie, I was looking for it this time around. There's no bro hugs. They do the high fives. They do the, the slapping each other's shoulder, but there's, there's no bro hugs. And just little details like that all add up to making this movie really feel like a organic, semi-realistic representation of what the kind of ideal first weekend in Texas could have felt like. Yes, I would agree that a big strength, which we've said a couple times, is capturing these moments, these vibes, really making each of these places seem like something you could step into and walk around in. It seems genuine. Another thing I liked about this movie is just the way that the different teammates interact is kind of explored in a thoughtful way. So Jake comes up with this word, fuck withery. And it's, it's really a, a beautiful word. I did a Google search and it was actually invented for this film. And one of the last things he says when he, he greets his teammates after he has that little romantic kiss with Beverly is he says, Mi amigos de fuck withery, which is to me just a beautiful turn of phrase. I just want to get that like tattooed on my arm or like framed. It's just, it's, it's perfect. And all the interactions with these characters, um, the way that they kind of mess with each other but also like have this deep bond is to me one of the main appeals of this film and, and captured so well. Yes, it accurately describes the dynamic of the ensemble that these guys mess with each other, but it helps to strengthen the bond that they have. There is a moment where they address it directly when they talk about how competitive everybody is. So we were in the same high school marching band, Brian, and I was in the trumpet section and it really reminded me of the feeling of being in the marching band with the trumpets, with these traditions we had, the pranks and the competitions, the way there was a little bit of one-upsmanship and things, but also like a, a very warm and strong bond despite all of what was going on. And it, it just, it felt very re reflected authentically in this movie for me. We, we've also mentioned that we really like the character Glenn. He just adds a lot to the film. Well, it's Finn. Excuse me, Finn. You get the sense that he's just this full, lively personality. The one moment that kind of stuck with me is they're at the, some restaurant for, or maybe it's a, a dining hall. I'm not sure exactly where it's supposed to be. And 
the lunch lady like clearly has this rapport with Finn and she she just makes a joke about I thought you were going to graduate and he's like oh, I'm still around and just the fact that he would have this connection with just this this person in the who works at the dining hall or the restaurant or wherever it is it's just a tiny little detail that shows like kind of how charismatic and how big a personality and how engaging he is it's he's he's really a fun character to watch and interact with other people I also think one thing that could have been a flaw, but ended up being a strength, I kind of already mentioned this, is how you don't really know the characters at the beginning and you don't, they're not typed strong enough to really get like a super strong sense of them at the beginning. And so where they could bl all blend together, um, they actually do end up being very distinct by the end. You know, you really kind of get a feel for what Finn is like. You get a feel for what Mac what the different freshmen are like, how they kind of react to things in different ways. And I think it's a credit to the script that you do get to know them and they do feel kind of real as, as the movie goes along. Yeah, everybody gets some business. Everybody gets at least one big moment where they're doing something significant. I also really admire the late 70s, early 80s period details. It's just through the roof. They didn't skimp at all on this. You get the cars, the haircuts, the facial hair, the fashion, the music, the look, the way that people interacted with each other. It's just a, it's a great attention to what the late 70s and early 80s felt like. And I think you also see this in Dazed and Confused. I think it's like... The, the coming of age time for Richard Linklater and it's near and dear to his heart, but definitely the everything about the production and the period details is strong. Yes. Clearly he's got a vision that is fully realized in the sense of production design, costuming, all these aspects to make these places and this time look and feel real. I've almost made it an afterthought, but the soundtrack, how prominent it is, how varied it is, how it really feels like, I mean, I wasn't alive in 1980, so I guess I don't really know, but it feels like songs you would hear at a radio and at a bar. Uh, the soundtrack is, is really good and adds a lot to the film. It, every scene feels filled with music and noise. And a lot of that is because they have these disco songs, these country songs, punk songs, this, this great lineup of party songs. It's, it's pretty good. I really enjoyed the soundtrack. This was another place where they spared no expense. I mean, they've got real popular songs. There's Whip It, there's My Sharona, all these big hits, and more variety than just that. But a really solid, strong soundtrack. The movie also starts with Jake carrying in a record collection into the house. So I think it was very intentional that music plays a big part in this film. I thought it was interesting that during the closing credits of the film, once it gets to the part that it's going to list all the music, I just thought, oh, this is going to take forever. Actually, at that part of the credits, they have like a mid-credit scene where it's all the characters singing another song that is like custom to the movie and it's all of them talking about their characters it's basically a recap of the rapper's delight scene one thing that i consider a strength because i'm a big fan of the movie i don't know if you would actually put it in the category of strengths or just a thing that it does but it has a lot of allusions to dazed and confused some of which we've already called out one is that there is prominent display of the athletes playing pool, just like they play pool in Dazed and Confused. There's even a specific shot of them playing foosball, the way it kind of zooms in on the foos players that is very evocative of a specific shot in Dazed and Confused. Um, another connection, there's a memorable scene in Dazed and Confused where some of the characters try to remember all of the episodes in Gilligan's Island. And then at the punk show and everybody wants some, they play the theme to Gilligan's Island. So there's a little connecting thread there. And I'm sure there are others. You brought up the, the Willoughby and Wooderson connection. Right. In terms of a character who is right. kind of clinging to an era gone by. Were there any other good things that Hanging you wanted to add? That was people. kind of like the major points for me. 
I think I've covered what I really enjoyed and appreciated. There is strong ensemble chemistry. I guess this is a strength. One thing I noticed that I haven't said yet is Beverly, the love interest. I recognized her from somewhere and I looked it up and she's in The Sweet Life on Deck the Disney Channel series that was a sequel to Sweet Life of Zack and Cody. So I was not a, a follower of that show necessarily, but I, I had seen her before, and I think it was there. She's yeah. one of the bigger actual stars of the movie, just in terms of stuff they've done outside of this movie. And she's also, she was in a Ed Sheeran music video. She's been in a couple of other movies where she starred... Um, I'm not sure if many of the other actors have been stars in real movies. So now let's talk about some not so good things in this movie. Some things that we maybe didn't like quite as much. So one I want to say up front that I personally don't actually think is a not so good thing. So much as it is just the nature of the film and almost its genre. Is that the film really does not have a conventional story. There's not a conflict or three acts it's just watching these people hanging out for a few days which i can see being a downside if you like movies for their story primarily Um, but for me is not a downside because i really like it when movies of this type are are made and it was uh for me i would definitely not consider that a downside but i can see that being a particular facet of the film that is off-putting yes so Contrary to what you might think, having just heard a 60-minute plot summary of a plotless film, uh, it is a a series of moments more so than uh, an arc that flows. And at this point, I don't know if I will watch this movie again. I was not necessarily fully hooked. I'm glad I did watch it the one time, but I don't know if it grabbed me in quite the way some other movies have. It does seem to be a style that Linklater is invested in to make these movies in a certain way. With this certain um, verisimilitude, I guess, almost a cinema verite. Definitely. Realistically capturing conversation and environments over moments of drama and or what might be critically called melodrama. So something else that I would consider a flaw of the movie, but is also kind of just an elemental choice of the movie is that although this is a spiritual sequel to Dazed and Confused, Dazed and Confused has a kind of sprawling and varied cast of characters. It's got geeks and jocks and all sorts of different social casts of people. Everybody Wants Some is very focused around the baseball players and it's got a distinct male jock get laid sort of gaze to it. I think it does explore that with nuance and some of the ways we've talked about, about the way that they compete and the way that they're trying to figure out what they're going to be and and all this. It, It does dig into it and criticize it a little bit. But the fact is, if you're not interested in hanging out with some jocks who one of their main focuses is picking up women, this movie is probably not going to do it for you. Another thing that I think on its own might not have been a complaint, but the fact that it also happened exactly this way in Dazed and Confused makes it feel kind of lazy, is that there is exactly one Black character, a likable, popular, highly unproblematic guy who's kind of just always hanging around and liked, and the fact that he's Black has no bearing on his character. I'm not saying that this movie needed to like add diversification or anything like that, but the fact that it had a black character in essentially the same exact role and situation as Dazed and Confused just felt kind of lazy to me. It also, though, struck me as kind of a trope of vintage sports movies, like The Sandlot, like The Bad News Bears. Just one of the boxes you have to check is you have to have the black character. So my last main complaint about the film is that I think Blake Jenner, the main character actor is kind of 
bland. I think he does the role fine because it's supposed to be kind of a blank slate character discovering the new world. I just think he, he himself is kind of bland. And I think Zoe Deutsch, who plays Beverly, is a little more interesting, but not quite interesting enough to really carry the end of the film. And just together, I, I just didn't, I wanted more spark and a little something more interesting. Even though they have some nice scenes, I, I honestly think that they're kind of bland as a romantic pairing. Not terrible. They're both well acted. And, and Zoe Deutsch in particular is quite charming and attractive in the sense of being beautiful, but also like very likable and you would want to spend time with her. But eh, not the strongest part of the movie for me. That's interesting. Yes, they could have done more to flesh out who the protagonist is as a person. He's almost like just meant to carry the viewer. So that kind of wraps up the main strengths and weaknesses that I wanted to call out. I'm wondering if you had any other things that that we haven't covered yet. I guess it will come out in a moment when we give our final rating. But I had some mixed feelings about this one. And I think it's good that we are, you know, pitching movies at each other because I think there will be a variety of takes and we'll also get exposed to things that we might not normally watch. For I think it's also a good there. segue to our signature trademark section, Is It Good? Where we each choose how good this movie is on an eight-point scale of goodness. So, where did this land on your Is It Good? You said it wasn't your cup of tea necessarily but i'm i'm kind of curious where you landed on it i think i'm going to put this one now i think we may need to put this grading scale up on the website if it's going to return again and again but i think i would slate this as being not not good so uh, for me a three out of eight that it's not necessarily what I would go into a movie looking for, but Linklater has a vision that he put a lot of thought and artistic effort into achieving, and he did that well. Definitely got to be your cup of tea, and I will say it is my cup of tea, the specific filmmaking style. So for me, my brain says that this movie is very good. I think it's got a couple of key flaws. But I also think that it's so well made and so engaging that for me, it would be very good. But my heart says that it is an exceptionally good movie. I really, really love watching this movie. I've watched it four times. I'm looking forward to watching it again. So I'm going to go exceptionally good on this, uh, which is our seven out of eight scale. So quite a big gap between us. I think the biggest one yet. Well, I'm glad that it invokes passionate feeling. That hopefully is going to be the goal for everything that we watch. It's going to inspire strong emotions. Well, with that wrap up, uh, I wanted to see if we had any parting thoughts unrelated to this film. Is there anything you've been watching or thinking about that you wanted to share with listeners? That would be a good recurring feature, just other things you've been watching. I did watch through The Social Network on Netflix, possibly worth a commentary of its own as well, I actually want to make a recommendation of not to something I've been watching, but something I've been listening to. So John Green is one of my favorite authors. He's a young adult, coming-of-age author. He's very, very good, in my opinion. He also has an exceptional podcast called The Anthropocene Reviewed, and he gives five-star ratings to different components of human life. The show is just wrapping up. Uh, going on indefinite hiatus with an episode that just came out. And if you haven't listened to that show, they're short episodes. They're 20 minutes apiece. It's mini essays that to me are often very moving and very thoughtful, occasionally funny, often informative. And at a time where things are kind of chaotic and it's hard to keep out of the noise, the way that he looks at individual things very closely and thoughtfully is very meaningful to me. So that is one recommendation I have. And the second one is another Green Brother recommendation. John's brother, Hank, has written two books. They're these kind of optimistic sci-fi epics about aliens arriving that are like very timely, but not as cynical as most timely things would be. 
and they are called an absolutely remarkable thing and a beautifully foolish endeavor. And if you enjoy reading sci-fi, I recommend that. So two green related recommendations from me. <laughs> I like that. This might need to be a recurring um, thing. Bring it to the table. So Brian, True. do you have, have you picked out something for us to watch next time? I think you were tossing around the idea of a double feature. So I do have an idea that we're not necessarily married to yet because it's going to take a little bit more time investment. A feature that I've had in mind to do is pairs of movies where very similar things happen, but they end up at drastically different conclusions. Like one will have a very dark and downbeat ending and the other will have a happy-go-lucky Hollywood ending. And I've come up with three of these pairs so far, maybe more in the future. But there is a two-movie combo that I'm going to pitch. I'd like to start with Parasite, last year's Best Picture winner, and a movie called It Happened on Fifth Avenue. 1947 is when It Happened on Fifth Avenue comes from. So certainly a difference in period, but I think... They comment on similar themes. I'm definitely looking. I've n I have not seen either of those movies. Um, so I'm looking forward to seeing them and comparing and contrasting and discussing with you. And we'll see if we can get some sparkling commentary together for you. All right, Brian. Then Thank tonight, you very much for talking about Everybody Wants Some. I forgot to mention one of my favorite details. Two exclamation points in the title officially. Everybody wants some exclamation point, exclamation point. It was fun. Hope you have a two exclamation point weekend. Bye.